Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. Today is Monday, June 21st, 2021, and this is episode 23A. And happy midsummer! It is the longest day of the year today. Um, funnily enough, it's the first day of summer, but it was a very cold and foggy when I woke up after the last week being really hot first thing in the morning. So hopefully that's a good sign that summer won't be miserable, but what do I know? Happy midsummer. Do some fun things. Have some fruit. Pick some flowers. Or just go to bed when you feel like it. Honestly, it's up to you. <laughs> For this episode, we are going to be talking about this week's comic book poll list, and we have a good deal of really fun, exciting things to talk about. Not quite as many as last week. It's, I think, something around 18 comics, not 21, so it's a little less, <laughs> but I still have a lot of things that I want to talk about. So we will do that, and after we do that, we will discuss The Bad Batch Episode 8, which was the most recent episode of The Bad Batch that did premiere this past Friday on Disney+. Plus. Um, so spoilers, of course, for that if you um, are going to haven't watched that yet, I suppose. And for our news and other things segment, we have two behind-the-scenes DC... I guess... Is it DCEU? Are we going with that still? I'm honestly not sure. Two behind-the-scenes DC movie pictures, or I guess I should say pictures from two movies, because it was a set of... Well, I'm really mixing this up. For The Flash, we got a set of pictures that were behind-the-scenes, kind of paparazzi-style, and for the Shazam uh, War of the Gods sequel which is War of the Gods, Fury of the Gods, excuse me. Uh, they had a really fun picture of the Shazam family that was released today, and I will talk about that. And finally, they also released the trailer for Snake Eyes. I am not super familiar with G.I. Joe in any sense. <laughs> um, that Channing Tatum movie was really bad, and Channing Tatum died right at the beginning, which I thought was hilarious. Um, that's about the extent of that's that's, that's not quite the extent of my G.I. Joe knowledge, but my husband is super into G.I. Joe. Um, it was a big thing for him as a kid, and he's recently started getting back into collecting them, so I will use what very little knowledge I have from that to talk about the Snake Eyes trailer. Kind of like how when the Mortal Kombat stuff came out. Everything I know about Mortal Kombat, I know through my husband. <laughs> and the same goes for uh, G.I. Joe, pretty much. So uh, we'll talk about that. That comes out next month. Um, just a fun little discussion. So that is what this episode is going to look like. So we'll start off with the comic book poll list. Um... Actually, before that, let's do uh, what I've been doing recently, my uh, my socials. If you are interested at all in my social media stuff, not my social security number, uh, you can find me on Instagram. My username is Anna with the comics. My Twitter is Savage She Geek because it's sensational was too many letters. You can find my website. It is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com and that is... Um, the Weebly extension is because I don't pay for it, so you gotta have that in there or you won't make it. I have on my website, I used to post a lot more, but since I have started this podcast, I have pretty much taken all of my energy from posting reviews and discussions of comics and put that into preparing to do that for the podcast. So, um, while I don't post as much of the reviews and discussions, I am doing this podcast to kind of replace them. Additionally, I also have my podcast notes that I've been trying to keep up with posting on the site after each episode, which are the notes that I go off of to make sure that I stay on track for the podcast, things that I would like to talk about, 
Um, it's not like verbatim what I say, but it's 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 a it's it's a general outline. Um, so if you don't like the sound of my voice, or if you are so, someone who is hearing impaired, uh, that is another option instead of listening to the podcast. And that is really all that I've been updating on the website recently, besides the female character reading lists. I know I keep saying I finished Clea's, and I'm going to post on the website. I have not done that yet because um, I'm actually going through and editing it first. Uh, maybe I'll just go ahead and update it with the whole thing completed and then I'll repost the edited version because I do have it completed. Um, so if you are at all interested in the character of Clea, I have her entire appearances read list with commentary on what it is that happens in each appearance. So instead of reading all these issues, you can read um, my, you know, my list here and that will tell you everything about the character. I also have that for Madeline Pryor completely done uh, the same thing on my website. And then I have it started for probably 10 other female characters, but since I do a lot of things in my days, um, I don't get to, around to updating that super often. Um, life goal, finish them all. <laughs> um, but it's also really great for familiarizing myself with the characters who I love. So um, that is all on my website. Um, and I think that kind of covers all of my social media stuff. I know I always say I have the TikTok, but I... I haven't posted on TikTok in probably over a month, if not more, um, and I don't really do anything on it anyway. It's, it's not a very good place to, to find me on social media, I guess, but I still mention it because it is out there. Um, and this podcast is available anywhere that podcasts stream besides Pandora. It's just, I, I don't, it's just, I haven't gotten to that yet, but, um, or I actually did and they rejected it for some reason. I haven't figured out why yet. So, um, you can also find it on YouTube. The Wonder Woman Mezco figure review, um, uh, best case scenario has been majorly delayed because certain pieces of her kit um, were lost <laughs> and they seem to be gone for good. Um, not really sure how that happened. It wasn't very much, but it was her cape and hands. So that's integral parts. Maybe getting those replaced, we'll see. Uh, but in any case, I have to wait until they get replaced to finish that review video because I have finished the first half and the second half would have her without those items. So that would be weird, obviously. Um, so sorry if you've been looking out for that. And the Sailor Moon thing I also haven't done. I do really want to do it. Um, I just am very, very busy. So it ends up uh, getting backplated a lot among the other things that I do through life. So anyway, now that I've talked your ear off about my personal life or whatever, let's go ahead and get into the comic book pull list. With so many comics that I'm going over this week, if you would like to skip over the comic section and get into the everything else, you're going to want to jump to about uh, an hour and three minutes in and I will be wrapping up my comic book pull list, <clears throat> excuse me, pull list and going into everything else at that time. What can I say? I had coffee this morning. <laughs> Longest day of the year. You got to have coffee. I got to have tea, but we'll get to that later on. Anyway, for this week, since there are some really, really good stuff, um, I did pull out about one, two, three, four, five comics to discuss a little bit more in depth than the others. And those are, are my spotlights on representation. I like to do that for um, spotlighting creators, characters, or series that for, at least from my perspective, I try to look at as many perspectives as I can. 
um, that represent a marginalized group of peoples. In this one, we have pretty, pretty, we cover that pretty well. We have uh, Marvel's Voices Pride, which of course would the LGBTQ uh, annual. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, I like it, but it's also a little bit not as good as it could be for reasons we will discuss. Um, Silk number four, we have women as well as Asian Americans in comics, uh, and that is brilliant. We'll talk about that one. Harley Quinn number four, of course, created, written by a woman, starring a woman who has a very complex history, um, who herself stands for some very, um, complex personalities and real world things about life as a human, really. <laughs> and then we have Captain Marvel, who is, of course, written by Ke Kelly Thompson right now and has a massive legacy of being a strong female character. Uh, and to wrap up the spotlights on representation, um, Eros and Psyche by Maria LaVey, uh, which I am saving until it is finished to read for reasons I will explain when we get there. But it is a fantastic women-created series, or I should say woman-created series, because it is all her, um, and that is just ridiculously impressing in my eyes. So let's go ahead and get started with our spotlights. And after our spotlights, in case you want to stick around for the rest of that, uh, we're also going to talk about Batman Reptilian, Black Hammer Reborn, Wonder Woman Black and Gold, Heroes Return, Good Luck, Spawn's Universe, which I thought was Spawn Universe, but I guess it's Spawn's Universe kind of makes sense knowing McFarlane. Uh, Vinyl number one, The Blue Flame, Fantastic Four, Life Story, Mr. Miracle, The Source of Freedom, very briefly, Robin, Jonah and the Impossible Monsters, Homesick Pilots, and then Wonder Woman 774. So we do have a number of other things to discuss after we get through the spotlights, but I just wanted to focus on the spotlights because, as I say, they are spotlighting marginalized peoples, and I think that is really important to constantly... Um, praise as it does as, praise as it requires it and all of these um are definitely owed a lot of praise um so let's go ahead and get started we have marvel's voices pride number one now um it's a little bit tricky with this because obviously this is fantastic this is a, some years ago we never would have gotten anything like this where you get various queer characters of different kinds in the comics and you put them all together in an anthology book and you tell their stories uh dc of course did it recently with um what was that called dc was it just dc pride whatever it was i think it was just dc pride number one um they, they had the same kind of thing. Some of the stories were based in the characters being queer and some of them were not. Um, so kind of assuming we're going to get a lot of that same kind of topics here. Um, the thing about this though, I, I obviously I'm, I'm as a queer woman myself, hugely supportive of these kinds of things, but I always see the negative side of them as well. And this isn't even me devil's advocating. This is you le when you do these things only once per year and you do them only in pride month the designated pride month right um you leave an enormous open gap for lack of a better term for haters to come in and call it pandering um and in their perspective and honestly seeing looking at what they're seeing here of course they're going to call it pandering because it comes out once a year only during pride month if they wanted to make it truly a thing that was 
not having room to be called pandering, you would have to make it more common. And that doesn't mean putting out anthologies about pride characters so more often. It means putting these characters and putting queer stories into the stories of the main Marvel universe that are coming out all year long. It doesn't mean you have to make every character gay. It doesn't mean you have to put queer stories in everything or make Captain America, you know, bisexual or whatever. I'm sure there's a bisexual Captain America out there right now. They're doing some weird stuff. Um, but not that that's weird, but if it was Steve, it'd be kind of weird. Let's be honest. Um, but you see what I, I, I hope you see what I mean. And then I have to, go back and retract that on myself again because yes as I said earlier I think in the DC Pride episode it is true that it's you know these corporations put out you know Walmart puts out their sprinkled cupcakes with rainbows on them and say oh yay Pride stuff and then take them down when June is over and that's yeah that's it's kind of pandering and it's you know low, low effort um, and it brings up a lot of problematic stuff about what corporations really think it's, it's very complicated but um as much negativity as comes with that i always have to remind myself there is the positivity with it as well and that is you know like i said before you get a midwestern family who are extremely homophobic and there's a closeted queer child in the family they go into walmart to do their shopping with their with their you know homophobic mother and they see the pride stuff there and they feel in their tiny little sliver of their life represented in a way that they will not be represented probably anywhere else in their life. So there is that little bright light <laughs> for all that corporate weirdness or rather corporate, um, pandering. I, I can't think of adjectives today, but, um, in any case, uh, I feel that this is nothing but nothing but positivity towards this. I just wish that Marvel would, put in a little bit more effort to, to cover their own butts to make it not something that can be called pandering for any way. Just logically, that would not make sense. And what I see that as is making it more common that these themes pop up in comics. As far as who and what is going to be in this series, or this issue, I suppose, uh, you, we have, from the solicitation, it says, Hulkling and Wiccan, Iceman, Mystique and Destiny, Karma, Akihiro, who is, of course, Logan's son, um, whatever his name is, Nico Minoru, Nico Minoru, and Carolina Dean, and it says, celebrate these and so many more legendary characters from across the Marvel archives. And then later on, I guess they have uh, reprints of what it says, some of Marvel's biggest LGBTQ plus moments. Um, I wonder what that would be just because they can't reprint like several issues in this. It's probably just going to be pages or panels. But what would that be? Would it be like um, Kyle and Northstar's wedding? Um, because first of all, that wedding was not at all what a character like North Star would want for a wedding. Um, but what else? Like, um, I'm trying to think like what even else certain characters coming out in comics? Like, has that even been a big deal recently? What are, what are Marvel's biggest LGBTQ plus moments? I honestly can't, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably going to end this and then come out like, like, oh yeah, duh, like, okay, Hulkling and Wiccan got married, you know, Iceman came out, I, I think, I'm not really sure where we landed on that, I think he's, he's out now, <laughs> the two Icemen, that was a very odd thing that we had going on, um, I don't know, I, I, I feel like it's something really obvious that I'm just not thinking of, but in any case, I'm going to be picking this up, I'm really hoping to find, um, 
one of the variants because we have some really good variants. Let me pull up the thing here. Um, for the let's start with the creators, the interior creators. For writers, we have Kieran Gillen, Alan Heinberg, and again, I apologize if I'm going to pronounce. I should just say I apologize to whose names I pronounce because it's going to happen. Uh, Terry Blas, Steve Orlando, Teeny Howard, Mariko Tamaki, Vita Ayala, Leah Williams, Lila Sturges, Anthony Oliveira, Crystal Frazier, JJ Kirby, and that's all the writers. Artists are JJ Kirby, Jan Bazaldua, uh, Jim Chung, Chris Anka, Olivia Coppel. Jethro Morales, Derek Charm, Joanna Estep, Javier Garon, Claudia Aguirre, Jen Hickman, oh, I love Jen Hickman, Brittany L. Williams, Samantha Dodge, um, and then I think color, Luciano Vecchio, and then we have colorists that include Marcelo Mialolo, David Curiel, Eric Arkin, Arcinega, oh gosh, sorry, Tamara Bonvillain, I love her coloring, uh, Paulina Gunnacho, Brittany Peer, Kendall Good, and then they also have a letter listed, a Ariana Meher. I don't know if she's the only letter, possibly. But that is the team um, looking at the variant artists. So I imagine some of those artists that I listed are probably actually cover artists. Oh no, here we have cover artists. Uh, Tyler Kirkham, Arif Prianto. They don't have all the color artists listed because it's definitely more. Let's see, we have... Um, Asuza, who has a Karma variant. That's really cute. There is a Jorge Jimenez variant with Hulkling and Wiccan. Uh, Russell Dodderman is doing an Iceman variant. It's a one of 25. Chris Anka has, of course, Carolina and... Um, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Nico. Holy, holy goodness. That was a bad blank. Uh, let's see. Then we have Jeffrey Verge has Northstar. That's kind of fun. Uh, I, this is Jimenez. I don't know if it's Jorge Jimenez, though, because uh, it doesn't have the whole name on here. It just says Jimenez. Uh, that is America. Then we have Tyler Kirkham is doing Angela. Oh, I love that one. I hope I get that one. Uh, the main cover is by, I believe, Luciano Vecchio. Yes, it is. And then Luciano Vecchio is also doing a one of 25 frame variant with different queer characters around the frames, kind of like they did back in the anniversary issues for old Marvel stuff. And I guess I did that recently too. Uh, and then finally, Olivia Coppel is doing a, uh, fun little like selfie variant where you have a bunch of characters posing in a picture. Um, so, you know, honestly, even if these stories, which based on the creative team, it's not going to be trash. If these stories were all to turn out to be trash, you have some really great covers here to buy. And just based on the creative teams, I mean, look at this. You have Vita Ayala, Kieran Gillen, Tini Howard, Leah Williams, Marco Tamaki, JJ Kirby, uh, Anthony Oliveira. Well, he's actually kind of a douchebag uh, on social media, as far at least. But all of these people are really, really big names, and they're all queer names in comics. So they, they did a really good job of pulling... Uh, all these all these people together, especially uh, like Steve Orlando doesn't do a lot of stuff for Marvel. Um, Vita Yala's done a lot of back and forth. Marco Tamaki hasn't been at Marvel for a while, as far as I know. Um, so that's really it's really nice to see that they're spreading their fingers, wings. I what they're they're doing the stuff to get the good people on board, and that's cool. <laughs> um, but in any case, I imagine this will be a lot of really fun stories. There's a lot of really cool characters who I'm a big fan of, so. Uh, regardless of what anybody may think of this issue, I'm excited for it, and I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, can I take a moment, though, a little bit off track of everything here, 
fans of America Chavez, please, please come and listen. Um, we, are you, how do you feel about that retcon? I can't be the only one who's butthurt about the retcon they had in the America series. Um, I'm especially butthurt about it because I have been, you can go back and listen to, I swear to God, it's there. I, 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 <laughs> when we started reading this series and we were, it looked like we were going to be learning about America's past between her arrival on earth and her, um, you know, basically starting to be a superhero the way that we mainly saw her, like in the young Avengers stuff, that was going to be the space that this was going to be filling in. And I swear, I kept saying it over and over again, how I love it when you have a new series and there's a writer who wants to add something to the series and make the story bigger, but they know that changing things isn't the way to go. And instead of changing things, they find an area that hasn't been really delved into and they go into that and they give us new information, a new story without changing integral parts of the character. And now if you've read that issue where they did that retcon, you can see why I have my foot down my throat. <laughs> um, this retcon, I'm not going to say what it is, but it, it makes her less interesting, certainly. It makes her story less triumphant. And it makes her origins, oh my god, far less impressive. It makes her origins not impressive at all. Um, it takes her from being a hero and a daughter of heroes to kind of being a victim who was used. And that, for obvious reasons, is very disappointing. I just kind of want to know. I'm not the only one who feels this way, right? Um, America Chavez fans, lend me your ears and tell me your thoughts because... I'm butthurt and I can't be the only one. Moving on to Silk number four. Um, I am obviously a, a big Jenny Frizen fan, right? Jenny Frizen being um, an artist who does a lot of comic variants, pretty much no interiors at all. I think she's done one interior page ever and it was basically a cover. Um, but anyway, a uh, huge, huge Jenny Frizen fan and she always posts the art that she's going to make for the covers coming out. And so often she, she'll post art and it'll say it's a regular cover and then they change it or rather they probably just announce it later on. Nope. This is an incentive cover and it's not going to be easy to find this. Uh, Jenny Frizen has a silk variant this week and it is one of those of fucking course. <laughs> um, I did this with the, well, I did it retroactively with Spider-Woman number two that she did, which was so, so beautiful. Um, this silk cover that now Jenny Frizen is doing, I went ahead and bought it. Sorry to my husband who will find this out when he listens to this podcast. I bought it. Um, it was the same amount as the Spider-Woman was. So I, I went for it. Oh, how good they're going to look on the wall next to each other. Oh my gosh. No regrets. I paid the bills first, so it's all good. <laughs> um, but anyway, Silk number four. Even if Jenny Frizen is an artist who I I pick some of her stuff up that I don't read because I'm that big of a fan of her art. I'm more of an art collector when it comes to her than a comic collector. Um, anyway, but Silk is great, so it doesn't fall into that category. I really am loving this Silk series. What's interesting, I believe this is Legacy issue 30, um, which means there have been 30 issues of Silk, but this is the third Silk series and they're on issue four of it. And this is already, this is just issue 30 for Legacy. 
can we please have a Silk series that lasts more than like 15 issues? I would love that. The elk. It's just the stopping and restart. It's been a couple of years. It's been like since 2016 since she had her last one, but good lord. Can we please have a Silk series that lasts more than a few issues? Um, especially like this. We have a clearly a winning combo. It's Moringu and Takeshi Miyazawa, and they're two fantastic Asian American creators, um, I believe. Yeesh, I shouldn't say that without checking that first. But my point is, this is a great series. It's made by great people. I Why do they give it such a short life? I think this is only going to be five issues. Um, and we're on issue four. So I'm very sad that that's going to be the way that it is. But um, hopefully this will sell well enough that people will uh, ask for a new series for Silk and we'll get uh, not have to wait like five years for the next Silk series. Um my, my big theory for this, it's not an important theory based on the plot, but my my one theory that I have is that, um, well, I think he probably already knows, but J. Jonah Jameson is going to put together that Cindy Moon is Silk. I think he probably already knows after the last issue of her as Silk going and eating dinner with him in his house. Come on, Cindy. Clearly you're crossing over the line of what it's appropriate to do as a superhero bodyguard who's not supposed to be telling him who you are. He knows you're Korean. <laughs> he already figured that out. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. Um, so my, my kind of theory with that is it's going to end with him telling her underhandedly that he knows who she is and that's how the series is going to wrap up. But as far as the rest of the plot goes, um, Cindy is trying to figure out what the like tech heiress, whose name is uh, Saya Ishii, see what she is up to because Silk is convinced that she's got either superpowers or something going on. Um, and there is a cat demon called Kasha that was working for Ishii. However, it looks like Kasha actually is up a little bit more to her own stuff. Um, solicitation here actually says, interview with an evil cyborg. Silk learns the truth about Saya Ishii from a chat with Silvermane, but he's not about to let her live to tell the tale. Meanwhile, Saya goes toe-to-claw with the cat demon Kasha. I don't know why I put a voice on for that. Um, but as I said, yeah, you have Saya who's going to have to fight Kasha, even though she was the one who I believe brought Kasha back into like reality or flesh or what something. Um, Kasha's supposed to be working for her, it's a point. But clearly Kasha is up to her own stuff. So um, it's, this is obviously going to wrap up really well. Nothing about this feels too big to cover in five issues. Um, and I mean that in the best way possible. I'm not saying it's it's a small series. It's a very, very well done series. It feels so um, wholesome. Uh, it feels it feels so right for Cindy's character uh, in the in the appearance, in the writing style, in what's going on. It is just it, the whole thing comes together in such a nice, neat little package as a Silk Cindy Moon series. And once again, really hoping it sells well enough that it's going to get a second series, well, fourth, really. Uh, and hopefully this team will stick around for a long time for Silk. Harley Quinn number four is by Stephanie Phillips with Riley Rosmo, and it does have a fantastic Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy cover for uh, Pride Month by Chris Anka. It's so pretty. I'm a big Chris Anka fan as it is. Um, he's done a lot of, I think Runaways is most of what he's done at DC, but this is so not Runaways. Runaways is Marvel. Oh my God. Pretend I didn't say that. He's done a lot of Runaways at Marvel. 
uh, anyway, this is such a pretty cover. Um, I would, I'm really hoping that I get the, uh, the Harlivey, as they say, cover for this one, because again, they came out this year officially as being a canon couple in DC and it was just kind of like swept under the rug. Nobody really noticed or said anything. I noticed. I noticed, Harley. You came out and I noticed. Okay, anyway, uh, the series has been super fantastic. Um, the last issue had a lot of Harley's like friends, subjects, patients, cohorts, whatever you want to call them, taken in by Su Hugo Strange. I was going to say Stephen Strange. That was almost really bad again. Uh, before a very wounded Harley kind of escapes and then just ends up coming face to face with Grundy in the Gotham sewers. Um, that's obviously not going to be an easy situation to get out of, and Hugo Strange is probably going to cause a lot of problems with these folks that he has taken before she is able to get there with them. Um, at least that's my theory. I haven't actually read the solicitation of this one, so I could be completely wrong. Um, I, I, I'm really glad that this series is going so well also, because... Um, there is a lot of Stephanie Phillips Harley Quinn in our future. There is one issue for each month going forward. We have solicitations out all the way through September already. And there's also an additional annual written by Stephanie Phillips. It doesn't have Riley Rossmo on art though. And the annual is coming out at the end of August, just a week after the August issue. So there's something like five different, let's see, this is June, July, August. Oh gosh, that's only two. I swear there was more. September. So there's four different issues coming up. There we go. I can do math. I can count things. I know the months. I swear. Um, a lot of Stephanie Phillips, Harley Quinn coming up. I'm very, very happy about it. She is just killing it. And I am, I am desperate to have uh, Poison Ivy pop up in this as a subject that they're going to discuss. Uh, a little bit more in depth. She's been brought up, but kind of just swept by very quickly in each circumstance. Um, but whether whether she pops up in the series herself or whether she's just going to be discussed a little bit more, either way, I would be really happy with that because once again, Harley Quinn came out this year and nobody really said anything about it. <laughs> or maybe I just missed that because I noticed that I didn't see anybody talking about it. Um... But yeah, I'm, I'm super stoked. This is a great series. It's starring a fantastic, complex, queer character who is very well written and very well characterized by Stephanie Phillips and very well drawn, honestly, by Riley Rosmo. So um, completely thrilled with how Harley Quinn is going. And I'm very, very glad to see that we have so much of the Stephanie Phillips Harley Quinn coming in the future. Now we have Captain Marvel number 29, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this arc and run, honestly, this whole kind of situation that we're in with Captain Marvel. Um, so let's start with the solicitation, because that may be a good, a good place to go. And I'll, I'm going to be spoiling recent issues, but they, they haven't been out for a while, so I doubt anybody's really behind. Uh, it says, Strange Magic, part two of three. Haunted by a doomed future, Captain Marvel is getting desperate. And that desperation is showing both in who Carol enlists to help her and the secret that she keeps from them as she as they embark on this adventure together. But Carol's quest for magic continues as she truly believes it's the last hope to stop a dystopian future, even if every magic user she knows disagrees. This is, of course, by Kelly Thompson. And the artist right now is Jack Jacopo Kamagi. Kamagi? Kamani, um, with Espen, oof, Grungeturn, yeah, sorry, 
um, on colors. We have Marco Chicano covers, and there is a David LaFuente Spider-Man villains cover featuring Vulture, which I think is going to be to promote the Sinister War thing that's happening in Amazing Spider-Man, I would assume. So that's the covers. I, I really love uh, Chiquetto, though, so I'll be picking that up. Um, this is, I, I got a lot of feelings about this. So the person who Carol is going to is Enchantress, and Enchantress is her enemy, the mother, the future mother of her enemy, because her enemy's from the future, and he is the son of Enchantress. Um, and Namor, for some reason. Um, but it's it's kind of, this is kind of a tricky thing because, um, first of all, I feel like Carol would know not to go to Enchantress, especially after seeing her let herself die for her son's goals in the future. Um, I don't know why anything would change if she's, just because she hasn't had the son yet, doesn't necessarily mean that she's not going to feel, um, some kind of whatever in her definition would be motherly inclination, which at that point in the future was letting him kill her. Um, so, so I don't really think that that's a safe choice. And in reading the solicitation, I have to, I, I have to wonder, um, is this future actually going to get stopped or is it going to end up being not relevant? Um, I would prefer it to not to be stopped because if it ends up being not relevant, this whole arc means nothing. Um, uh, yeah, I just, it's, it's been very up and down, um, this arc. And I honestly, this, this kind of series, um, the thing with Carol and strange having slept together felt like a big moment, the way that it was written at the time, but then it was blown off completely in the next issue to be nothing. And, you know, spoilers for the next arc, because I read the solicitations. Um, so we kind of know how the next issue is going to end based on the solicitation for issue 31. Um, but it says, spoilers, that she and Rhodey are back together, which tells me that either everybody was right and Carol was wrong, this is not the future, or she's actually going to be able to stop it. Um, I don't, I don't honestly know what that's going to end up being, but if it ends up being that Carol was wrong the whole time, why would she be, why would Thompson be doing this, writing Carol to look very dumb and pigheaded? Um... And it makes, it makes the whole breakup with Rhodey and the affair with Strange look really, really pointless and weird, respectively. Uh, the strange thing would be strange, you know, so to say. Maybe she's going to end up wiping away time, and that's why the, the sleeping with Strange will have never happened. I, that would also, again, then what would be the point? I hate wipe away time arcs because it's just you just wipe away that history, and now what was the point? Um... And it, it, it's, it kind of goes with how Kelly Thompson has been writing Captain Marvel as a whole. Uh, it's been very up and down, like I said, um, but it's been up and down in themes as well as pacing and quality of writing, which is not all great stuff. Um, themes, you know, and pacing you can take, but with the quality of writing um, having been kind of questionable with the like, oh yeah, big deal with Strange, never mind, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it gets a little frustrating. Um, and they're bringing back the trope of ruined vacations again in the issue 31, which gets very tiresome and has already been used in this series actually a few times before. So um, that's not really a good sign in my eyes. And this time Carol and Rhodey are going to be going on their vacation 
to go help, or going off of their vacation, I guess, to go help Lariel, who is Carol's half-sister, uh, and also the Cree destroyer, or Cree accuser, excuse me. Um, I, I swear, if she kills off another one of her own creations, I will quit this Captain Marvel series. Um, uh, Lariel was a fantastic creation. She was one of my favorite, she is one of my favorite things that has come out of the series, if not my single favorite thing that has come out of the series. So, um, really, <laughs> really hoping she doesn't get killed off here, um, and hoping Kelly Thompson can wrap up this, this current strange magic arc. Which again, why is it called Strange Magic? Because she's not even with Strange. He's not, he's not relevant anymore. It, uh, we'll see how this ends. I'm hoping it's going to be better than I hope, than I expect. Eesh, better than I expect for sure. Now, before we get into the rest of the comic book pi uh, polls for the week, let's talk for just a second about Eros and Psyche by Maria LaVey. This is a series that I'm not currently reading, but I am purchasing. My husband's reading it, and I am going to be reading all five issues once they are all out at the same time uh, for, you know, chaotic reasons for, you know, I got a lot of stuff to read, and sometimes it's just easier. And also because Maria LaVey's stylus is written and drawn by her once again, uh, just like Luna, which, you know, if you didn't hear me talk about that, I, I adored. <laughs> um, and her, her style is very much like, um, trippy mysteries. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's sometimes, you know, a little bit more, uh, fun, I want to say or possibly satisfying to read them all in one go so you don't have to wait between them <laughs> to find out what it is that's going on. Uh, Eros and Psyche is the story of two school, as far as I can figure out, it's the story of two school girls who meet and become close. And if you are familiar with the way that Maria LaVey makes comics, you will know that there are, it's going to be a lot more to it than that. Um, that's definitely just the surface. Um, being called Eros and Psyche, it makes me think of the Greek myth, which if you're not familiar, um, Eros being the son of Aphrodite, he wanted to take a wife, this woman Psyche, uh, but for whatever reason, she could not look at him. Um, and so he would only be there at night, you know, wink, wink. Uh, so she couldn't see him in the dark because, you know, it was before electricity. Um, and then one night she gets really curious because her sisters start telling, trying to make her jealous. So I like, oh, he's probably really ugly. And so she brings a, um, brings a candle to the room and tries to see his face, sees that he's Eros and then drips wax on his face and he wakes up and they have to end their relationship. Um, so that, that, you know, it could possibly be relevant to... <laughs> relevant to the series but that's just a story as I know it from Eros and Psyche uh, from the Greek myth so there's that uh, let us go ahead and move on to the other comic books that we are uh, that I am pulling this week we have a really fun one here at least I'm gotta assume it's gonna be hella fun is Batman Reptilian number one let me say that again Batman Reptilian did you get that? Because it's gonna rock. This is by, you know, even just in case you weren't sure that it was gonna be good, it's by Garth Ennis. Garth Ennis is famous for writing Preacher, The Boys, and a very long stint of Punisher. So, uh, once again, the series is called Batman Reptilian, and it's written by Garth Ennis. I just feel like I have to repeat that because it's really 
really bonkers. To add to the bonkers, it is going to be arted by Liam Sharp, who is, I suppose you could call a trippy, almost surrealist art, aka this um, is going to be the kind of bonkers that we all really hope is coming when we say something is bonkers. So that's super exciting. Um, interestingly, though, it looks like we won't be seeing the creature itself, uh, the reptilian, right, for the first few issues, uh, which makes me very excited about how the story is going to be told if we don't see the main character for a while. Um, it makes me kind of hope that this is going to play out as part mystery, part sci-fi wackiness, and part horror show, which everything points to, yes, it will be. Um, I will read you the solicitation here because it's Batman Reptilian. <laughs> it says, what strikes fear into the hearts of those who terrorize Gotham? It used to be Batman, but something far more frightening than a mere man stalks the shadows, and it's after Gotham's villains. How savage must a monster be to haunt the dreams of monsters? Wow, it's gonna be so good. <laughs> uh, I'm very, very excited for this. I will probably be adding it to my pull list um, pretty much right away, so... Um, do not miss out on Batman Reptilian. I'm, I'm expecting that to be bonkers fun. We also have Black Hammer Reborn as a number one this week. I personally am not familiar. I know, frankly, absolutely nothing about the original series of Black Hammer. Um, so I'm hoping that this is going to fill things in pretty well for newcomers. The reason that I would like to pick it up now is because um, it is the next project for Caitlin Yarsky, who was the artist for Bliss and whose art style I just am in love with. Um, it's written by and created by, I suppose, Jeff Lemire. Um, and this series is supposed to be picking up apparently 20 years after whatever the last series was. Um, from what I gather, this was Black Hammer is about a black woman who was a superhero who had a hammer. Um, <laughs> that's what I gather based on the solicitation and the cover. Um, now apparently she has a, a family and kids and, uh, for whatever reason, the hammer is going to come back into her life being used again after 20 years. So I'm hoping they fill things in enough for this to make sense. I'll at least be picking up this first issue to find that out and to, um, see that, that good, good Caitlin Yarsky art. I am a little bit on the fence about Wonder Woman Black and Gold, um, for, for one thing, you know, this is obviously a big trend. They're doing it at indie publishers, they're doing it at DC, and they're doing it at Marvel. The black and gold, the red and white, the red and black, whatever it is, blue and blue and red for Superman, you know. Um, they're doing, I think they're doing a Red Sonia one, or so, they're doing something at Dynamite, I want to say, as well. Um, it's, it's a trope that's kind of like, mm, whatever. Um, but... I am interested in this first issue of Black and Gold. It's going to have some really good covers further along, obviously, but the covers of this one, um, they, they really pull out all the stops. DC, uh, from what I can say, they pull out all the stops when it comes to the covers of these anthology color series. I don't know what you call them. The, like the, super, the Batman one, the Superman one, this one. Um, whatever you call those. They, they do some amazing cover artists. Um, this one we have Carla Cohen... Warren Liu, Yannick Paquette, who is oh, one of my favorites, Jen Bartel, another one of my favorites, Ramo, Ram, Romano Fradon, and Sandra Hope, 
Uh, and then this one is Joshua Middleton, who is, um, he's been doing a fair amount of Wonder Woman stuff uh, for the covers himself. So as far as, this is an anthology book, so as far as the creators go, um, it, we have John Acrudi, or our, ooh, no, it was Arcudi, Nadia Shamas, AJ Mendez, and then Becky Cloonan and Amy Reader as writers. For art, we have Becky Cloonan, Amy Reader, Ryan Sook, Ming Doyle, Morgan Beam, and yeah, Morgan Beam, and then the cover artist. So, um, interesting, interesting groups, I suppose. Uh, I would be most interested in the self or in the single artist writer stuff because, like, with Becky Cloonan and Amy Reader in this, um, because they tend to be my favorites of these um, anthology uh, and issues, color issues. Um, so I may pick that one up just to kind of check out uh, the, the starter issue and to get some of those really, really nice covers. Uh, Heroes Return number one. I have absolutely no interest in the Heroes Return um, or Heroes Reborn or anything like that. Um, don't care. Not at all. Um, what I am potentially getting this for, and I'm going to have to wait until Wednesday till the East Coast has these comics out, because I'm on the West Coast, so I can find out what's in this comic uh, before I buy it. Because what I'm interested in um, is the new Star brand, right? It's It was a, ignoring how badly Jason Aaron refrigerated her mother. Oh my god, it was horrible. Just just horrible writing. But, um... The, the new star brand in canon is a baby girl. Um, there's a lot of plot that they could be doing with that. They're just not for some reason. Um, a lot of missed opportunity, in my opinion. Lots of missed opportunity. They're not doing shit with her. Um, but it would appear that this baby star brand is going... I guess her name is Brandy Selby, whatever. Um, is going to be a toddler slash preteen I'm not sure in this um, I am interested in following her story so if this ends up being something that ties into her history officially um, then I'll be very interested in how her part of that but if it ends up being more like yeah this is not canon and then she's gonna go back to being a baby in the regular stuff I, I will skip this but um, that is the one reason I am interested in this. Uh, so we'll, we'll all have to wait and see um, Wednesday what people say about it before I go and pick it up from my shop. We have a couple of indies um, this week. We have Good Luck Number 1 and Vinyl Number 1. Uh, Good Luck Number 1 is going to be about a world where everybody has a quantitative amount of luck. And uh, however, these you know, this certain group of kids do not. They are unlucky factually unlucky and it's going to come up to them to save the world of course so um sounds like a really fun uh kind of light-hearted plot um we'll see but if it's good we'll keep up with it vinyl number one i'm probably less likely to pick out actually to be honest um it's about this guy was most wanted got criminal who's friends with an fbi agent who goes missing and is, i don't know um, the cover looks really cool, but I, again, it's one, it's one that I will wait until Wednesday until the, like, preliminary reviews from actual readers and not people in the comics industry, um, who are, are friends with the creators, uh, what they have to say. So we'll see about those two indie ones. I'm hoping, um, one of them will be a good one that sticks around. 
Spawn's Universe kicks off this week as well. Um, I had thought that it was going to be called Spawn Universe, but it kind of makes sense knowing Todd McFarlane Spawn's Universe because he's got that ego, and so it's got to be... You, you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying. Um, I, I have one critique already, um, and I'm kind of upset about this because I'm looking through the covers right now. God damn it. Um, is this also J. Scott Campbell? Bill Campbell, of course. Ugh. Uh, the main cover of this is, and honestly, I think this shit is hideous. Honest to God, awful cover by J. Scott Campbell of She Spawn. It looks like trash. She looks like a blow-up doll that's been bent into really weird positions and given Nerf guns. It genuinely looks like trash. Um, yeah, she just, she looks like a blow-up doll because her limbs are like weird and bendy. <laughs> uh, yeah, really ugly cover in my opinion, but I am super curious what is going to happen with, um, with She Spawn. She hasn't really been in things that much, but I know, uh, uh, Marcio Takara, who is one of the artists, yeah, one of two artists, uh, on the, or three, I guess, probably, on the interior of this, Gosh, okay, four maybe. Um, <laughs> he's one of the artists on the interior of this, and I follow him on social media because he's great, and he has been drawing a lot of She Spawn. Um, so I'm hoping that we're going to get a good amount of her in this, and that she doesn't look like a blow-up doll in every panel. I can't get over how bad that cover is. There's also covers for every single one of the uh, the characters who are going to be in this Spawn universe, like the Gunslinger Spawn and the, um, the whatever that as real looking spawn is uh but of course j scott campbell got she spawn and it looks like trash <laughs> if you're a j scott campbell fan i'm not sorry it's it is a trash cover <laughs> anyway moving on uh the blue flame number two i picked up the number one of the series because it was written by colin bunn who i'm familiar with um kind of a mediocre first issue if you ask me um it has things about it that were kind of like, okay, that might play out to be something kind of interesting, but then it also had stuff that was like, yeah, that's that's really just a trope that appears in most things similar to this, and I don't care. Um, kind of on the fence if I'm going to get the second issue, to be honest. Um, I'm going to have to probably go back and flip through the first one again. You know what? That's probably not a good sign, is it? <laughs> if I'm trying to convince myself to get it. Probably not a good sign, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, better sign, though. Fantastic Four Life Story number two. Really loved the first issue. It is not by Chip Zartsky the way that Spider-Man Life Story was, but it is following the same methodology as Spider-Man Life Story, which is following these superheroes, which is the Fantastic Four in this case, through their history. However, they're, they're um, taking time... They're taking account for time, I guess. Whereas comics don't, you know, Peter Parker's still, what, 30 at his oldest right now? And he's been around since the 60s or whatever? Like, um, yeah, the 60s, uh, and he's still 30. This uh, life story, it takes time into account. So each issue is going to be an era, um, uh, or a decade, I should say. And the first issue, I think, was the 60s. And then we're going to get the 70s, 80s, 90s. And they're actually going to be aging as each thing happens. And each of their integral stories from those decades, from those eras, is going to show up in uh, the, the Life Story comic. But they're going to be 
affected by the fact that time is moving at a normal, at an actual real world pace, you know? So uh, if you've read Fantastic Four, or excuse me, Spider-Man Life Story, you definitely know what I'm talking about. Um, If you're a fan of Galactus, I think you should check this out because Galactus is kind of going to be, as far as I can kind of visualize, the big bad of this, who's kind of, he's probably not going to show up for a couple of decades, but Reed will probably destroy his relationships and if not his career, trying to... Uh, or professional career, I suppose, trying to find a way to stop Galactus before he comes. That's my theory of what's happening right now. Um, and I am really excited to see if I'm right. And in any way, either case, in any case, um, whether I'm right or wrong, this I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see how this creator, how these creators um, decide to play out the Fantastic Four story through the decades, through time this way. It's, it's, it's going to be really interesting, I think. It already is, but it's gonna it's gonna be additionally interesting. Um, I I guess I'm picking up Mr. Miracle, the Source of Freedom, number two. Um, here's the thing: the Mr. Miracle series by Tom King and Mitch Gerrans was not DC Black Label. I did a bit of research last night to make sure that I was talking about the right thing. No, nothing, nothing in any of the publishing factoids. Or none of the covers, none of the collected editions, none of the single issues. Black Label is not written on there, period. Um, so it's not DC Black Label. So I guess they're just treating it as not canon, though, for some reason. Because that Mr. Miracle series ended with uh, Barnett and Scott having a son and Barnett getting pregnant with a daughter. This Mr. Miracle Source of Freedom has... Uh, like Navarra, whatever the hell the name they made up for her is, the daughter of Scott and Barda, um, who claims to be the only child of Scott and Barda. So are they going to come out and say that she killed her brother, doesn't know about her brother, or that he never existed and that was just a not-canon series? Um, because I, I get that it was kind of like, the whole thing with is, is Scott alive or dead at the end of it is very, very, like, up in the air. Um, and, and at what point he died, if he's dead, is very up in the air. At what point, what stuff is real and what stuff is, like, his afterlife or whatever. Um, it's, all, it's it's all kind of free to, for your own discretion. I don't, I don't know if there's a solid answer to it. But to an extent, some of that stuff should still be recognized as canon, right? At least, like, the first few pages, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Um, maybe they're just gonna say that he died at the beginning and the whole thing was a, was a, was his afterlife and that's why none of that matters. I don't know. Um, but I also, I really don't like that, um, <laughs> she's, she's the daughter of Scott and Barda, um, but why, she, she looks more like a follower of Apocalypse than Barda did. She also looks a little bit lame because they can't seem to design simple suits for people anymore. Um, and they tend to be way overdone, but I just, I, I, um, <laughs> she's supposed to be like a villain. And I don't understand doing that with her, the history of her parents. So I don't know. I don't get it. If If you know, let me know because I don't. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, so that's why I'm potentially picking this up. Um, but again, tomorrow, it comes out tomorrow, so I will, um, kind of wait and see what people say about it and what the news about that is going to be before I pick it up myself if I do that. But one DC book I will definitely be picking up, Robin number three, 
of Matthew Rosenberg. I've been really enjoying this. It is surprisingly good. Um, just because it was a series about Robin. Who, who, who cares? Matthew Rosenberg has definitely been one that has, um, oh gosh, I need to, I need to check that. Is it Matthew Rosenberg? Is it? Give me a moment. Uh, Joshua Williamson. Bomb, bomb, bomb. Matthew Rosenberg's the one who's really not a good writer, in my opinion. Joshua Williamson. I get them mixed up. I'm not sure why, but anyway, Joshua Williamson is the writer of this. The artist is apparently Gleb Melkinov. Um, and then there's some really cool Francis Manipal uh, variants. He's a Filipino artist, and I absolutely adore his style. So check that out if you are a fan of art, I guess. Um, but this Robin series, I've been really impressed with. We've only had two issues and it feels like it's got really solid legs. It's probably not going to go on for more than a couple of issues, which is fine. Um, or maybe it will be ongoing, honestly, who's to say? Um, but in any case, I, I've been enjoying it. I'm hoping that he kind of gets aged up maybe a little bit, if that's possible. Um, well, I don't know. We'll see. Jonah and the Impossible Monsters is one that was, I, I keep, I become more and more surprised as I continue liking. It's, it's incredibly simple in how it is playing out, but the, but the different concepts that they're kind of using bring up a lot of different questions and complicated ideas. Um, so it's, so it's very interesting in that sense. Um, the art is fantastic. I believe this would be considered an all ages comic, um, but it's all ages in the way that, Voltron might be all ages, right? Um, you know, where you can watch it as a kid and have fun with it, but you can also watch it as an adult and get something great out of it. Um, so Jonah and the Impossible Monsters, I feel like fits into that category really well. Um, good for kids and also plenty of nice, clean fun for adults. Homesick Pilots goes into its second arc now with issue number six. Um, particularly excited for this one. Homesick Pilots was an issue, or excuse me, was a series that with issue one, I was, I knew that this was going to be one that I'm in with. It's written by Dan Waters with art by Kaspar Wingard. Um, really, uh, absolutely stunning art style. Um, the best way that I can kind of describe it is where a lot of traditional art might have black lines to, you know, kind of hold characters in and to line things. Um, this uses a lot of white and neons and it does amazing things for the story and for the images. Um, the, the solicitation here, I will say, I will read just because I am, oh wow, I just looked at the covers for the coming issues. They look sick. Um, let's go ahead. Yeah, let's go ahead and read the solicitation. It says, It's three months since the haunted house walked through Santa Manos, and now the U.S. military would like a walking ghost power weapon of their own. Thank you very much. The homesick pilots might be the key to their getting one, if they can be convinced to sell out, that is. So the homesick pilots are the main character's band, um, and she has kind of been bonded with this haunted house. Um, and in the last issue, she was able to make it into kind of a mecha house that she that she was piloting <laughs> really really cool uh this is, this is taking place in 1994 but it's touching on just so many really awesome tropes ones that you love to see not ones that are like overused things um really really loving this and if you, i'm looking at all eight of the covers that they have solicitations for um i didn't really notice it before but they 
all look fantastic together. I know I have a couple of variants, so now I want to go out and find the non-variant ones so I can get all of these covers together. Um, and we have, as I said, solicitations up through issue eight. I'm not going to spoil it for myself because, like I said, again, this is one of my favorite indie series going out right now. Um, I connected with it immediately. I think everything is really well characterized, described, um, and you get a very clear vibe I think that what they're trying to, what the creators are trying to put down is really easy to pick up, my man. That's what I'm trying to go with here. Really, really love Homesick Pilots. And finally, to wrap up the pull list, finally, uh, we have Wonder Woman number 774. This is going to be what I'm calling my first Wonder Woman cover. Excuse me, it's Wonder Woman issue um, for this creative team of Becky Cleland and Michael Conrad. Um, they, this also has, I believe, additional story at the end uh, with Jordi Belair being the writer there. So that's fun. I, I love supporting Jordi Belair as a writer as well as a colorist because she is fantastic at both. Um, this, uh, gosh, it was I think it was 771 or 770 that they came in on, Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad. I could not jam with what was happening. It was... It was so much Norse mythology that I felt like I was reading about Sif at Marvel instead of Diana at DC. Um, so I kind of, I skipped those issues, to be honest. And now I'm going to pick up their uh, their era of writing with uh, Wonder Woman 774 because she is back to normal-ass Greek and Roman shit. Um, this solicitation basically is saying that Olympus has fallen. Wonder Woman finds that uh, the kingdom of the gods is in ruin and only two of the gods remain. The rest of the Olympians are dead and it's up to her to travel, travel to the graveyard of the gods to recover their souls. And there is no rest for our hero. Um, that sounds way more up the alley of what Wonder Woman should be up to in my mind than going to Valhalla and Asgard. I just don't understand why they did that. Maybe if I read it, I would understand it, but it just, I, I couldn't make myself read it. I'm sorry, I couldn't do it. Uh, we also, this is a bi-weekly comic, so this is going to be coming out. We have one, two, three, four, five issues coming out between now and September 14th. Um, it looks like it's going to be a good amount of fun things. Um, standard kind of Wonder Woman covers, so... Uh, Joshua Middleton is still doing variants on Wonder Woman. I am hoping I'll be getting this this week's variant because it is stunning. It is a very Greco-Roman kind of Art Nouveau Diana with a... I know what this thing is called, but I can't remember right now. It's the scepter that has uh, the snake wrapped around it. And it's very, very beautiful, as Joshua Williamson uh, kind of is known for his art being. And that wraps up my pull list for this coming week. Of course, these are comics or were comics that are going to be coming out tomorrow for DC on the 22nd. And everything else is coming out on Wednesday the 23rd because Wednesday is New Comic Book Day. If you did not hear anything that sounded interesting to you out of the, th the stuff that I have discussed in this week's comic book pull list for myself, do not fret. There is a lot more than that to be dis to be read. Um, I don't cover all of the books that are coming out. I don't even cover all of the books that I read. Um, so be sure to check your local comic book shop and they will be very, very happy to give you some recommendations on comics that you will enjoy in exchange for some cash. All right, so moving on to the Bad Batch episode eight. Um, really enjoyed this episode. It was... 
something that we've all been waiting for to happen. At last, we see what Crosshair has been up to. The episode is called Reunion, and that is definitely referencing Crosshair encountering the Batch again. Um, Basically, what happens here is the Empire gets wind of a signal coming from a dead ship graveyard, basically, on some planet. Uh, They, of course, figure out that it is the Bad Batch, and they are going to, of course, send a Crosshair to go get them because he is the most likely person to be able to... um, stop them because he knows them and everything about them and he was one of them uh and here's where we start to see what the clone like wards the kaminoans on kamino are up to um they clearly have have some kind of plans for the batch or at least for omega um potentially they may have made her on purpose um i'm not sure i don't think that's been something that's really been brought up she was supposed to be just one of these glitches right um, but looking like how invested the Kaminoans are in her safety, um, I'm starting to think maybe there's more to it than she's a glitch or a random coincidence. Maybe they made her on purpose. I don't know. Um, Crosshair finding the batch on the trashed graveyard ship goes about as well as you would imagine. Uh, like I said, he knows the batch. He knows how they think. There are a lot of scenes filled with tension as various members of the batch get um, they get through the ship and hide with the other clones, which have been sent by the Empire, or hide from the other clones, (laughs) which have been sent by the Empire. It all ends up, the whole battle winds up in the engine with Crosshair on the outside, uh, kind of pinning them in so if they try to get out, he can shoot them and there's no way to go backwards because there's other clones. They're pretty much, and I think they actually say it a few times, they are surrounded to make matters much worse. Um, the, the Crosshair's guys, due to what the Bad Batch have already kind of done, are able to get the engine up and running, putting everyone in incredible danger because obviously if they're inside that like engine as it starts working, that, you know, bad death quickly and painfully um (laughs) it ends up being though uh the batch gets saved kind of by the bell practically um uh, but crosshair is not so lucky because he's again at the back of the ship he was waiting for them to sneak out they got out another way um and so he was at the back of the ship when the engine goes off and ends up getting severely burned over um much of his body especially his like head and chest area you actually see a shot of him at the very end of the episode um looking like uh kind of like how anakin got pulled out of the lava all wrapped up and stuff though um it it definitely looks like they're trying to cement crosshair as a villain um to make us to make us not like him and not pity him at all but i still stick to my theory that he's going to be the one to save omega in the end or possibly sacrifice himself or save the batch in some way after potentially after his inhibitor chip is turned off again um but after all that has happened already and all that is going to happen between now and you know whenever then might be it's really hard to imagine um that this that that reunion is once everybody's on the same page again will be very positive um there's been a lot of things that have happened especially now that crosshair is physically wounded to an extreme extent um uh, that probably still won't feel very great if he kind of gets the light the switch turned back on and sees daylight again 
Um, I don't, I don't think he'll feel too good about that still. Uh, the other said this episode is titled Reunion because it's referencing the Batch finally running into Crosshair again. Uh, but to make matters worse, another reunion that happened in this- oh, it wasn't a reunion, it was a reunion between us and a character, the viewers and a character. Um, they run into the bounty hunter Cad Bane, uh, who it turns out, of course, is there for the girl, who is Omega, obviously on behalf of the Kaminoans, so that he is who they have gotten on, I guess, their payroll to go and find her because they're desperate to get her back safely. He, um, Cad Bane was a longtime side character in the Clone Wars. He would always piss me off whenever he would show up, uh, and not much has changed. He still pissed me off. People really, really love him, though. I don't get it. Um, I never liked him. He's too tricky to be, like, a useful character, in my opinion. Um, but I guess it's, like, his Western demeanor, and that was, like, pre-Mandalorian, I think. Was that pre-Mandalorian? I think it was when we first met him. When we first had met him, definitely, but, um, I don't know. I never really liked him, <laughs> but it's, uh people do so yay fun reunion whatever um cad bane was clearly paid to get omega from the batch and get her he does the episode actually ends with a very ominous note of hunter returning to the rest of them to tell the others that omega has been taken um something a lot of people are pointing out on reviews of this episode that i noticed uh covers pretty much every review i looked at said something about this this was a very well animated episode the cinematography was great um, the movement through the ship graveyard and the ship graveyard itself all throughout the interiors and exteriors were all very, very well done. There was a lot of large sets and they did a really good job with, um, making the, uh, vastness and oldness of where they are showing through how they were not filming it because it's animated, but whatever you might say for that, how they were animating it. The first of two DC movie uh, behind-the-scenes pictures kind of sets that we're going to talk about here is about The Flash. They are currently filming The Flash movie in a place. I'm not sure where they're filming it. Um, but uh, this is, of course, going to be their version of Flashpoint. It's not just going to be a movie about The Flash. And they have got some really, really interesting stuff going on. These behind-the-scenes pictures that came out... Uh, just, I believe, yesterday, they feature Barry Allen's Flash. Um, they also feature um, the new Batman. The, the new Batman. Oh, yeah. Good one. The, the Michael Keaton Batman. He's new at it. This is his first time being... No, it's obviously not his first time being Batman. Um, but he is going to be, as far as we can tell, Batman in this. They're also going to have um, the Batfleck back. Ben Affleck is going to be Batman himself was the Batfleck again. Um, he's going to be Batman for some amount of time during this movie. Um, but, but I think the thing that stood out the most for these pictures, and there was also one of what is presumed to be Michael Keaton's character's car, very elongated, classy, uh, Batman kind of thing, not his Batmobile. It's just a regular car. Um, very interesting thing though, Sasha Calais as Supergirl, um, very, very impressed with how she looks. One thing that people notice right away is that she looks very, um, oh, let's be honest. She looks exactly like the Supergirl who was the daughter of Clark and Lois, I believe. And that was Lana Lane Kent, or excuse me, Lara Lane Kent. Um, and she was Supergirl, Tom Taylor wrote. 
And Sausage Cali's Supergirl for the Flash movie is a picture-perfect representation of that Supergirl. She has the little bit of olive-toned skin. She has the short, dark hair, which, honestly, that haircut is so incredibly perfect and good on her for cutting her hair for the role, um, dedication and all that. Her suit, a lot of people are pointing out that it looks similar to Henry Cavill's Superman suit. I would love to see Henry Cavill's Superman in this movie. However, we have heard nothing about that, and so it does not feel very likely that we're going to be seeing that. Um, and if we do see it, odds are it's going to be a lot like in the first Shazam movie, how he shows up at the end and you see it from the chest down, and you just have to assume that's Henry Cavill's Superman. It's obviously not him there, but um, you're meant to assume that's who this is. You just don't see his face or identifying features. Uh, so her Supergirl outfit is, of course, the standard red and blue. It's designed, uh, it's, it's pants, uh, also in case you are having a hard time picturing what I'm describing. It is a, it is a, is it a standard pants Superman outfit. It's a little bit of a lighter tone than Henry Cavill's Superman, but it does have a similar, uh, st uh, strips, you might say, like, uh, almost like muscle tape. Um, going down the sides and on the chest and in a couple other places. So it looks really phenomenal. Um, people have noted that, yes, it does look a little bit awkward when she's in the uh, the rig to be lifted up and so that she's flying. That is just because the rig in the waistband kind of hikes the suit up a little bit and makes her torso look kind of short. Um, I imagine that's something they're going to fix in post-production. Um, that I'm sure is something they fix pretty regularly on these kinds of projects. Uh, what's interesting also about these photos, like I said, it's got Barry, it's got Michael Keaton, and it's got Sasha Calley's Supergirl. Um, they are all from the same spot. Looks like it's in front of a courthouse or something like that. Barry's in a really ill-fitting gray suit, which is very fitting for him. And Michael Keaton is in this really nice blue suit with a blue shirt underneath. Uh, really nice navy tone. So... Um, well, I was kind of ta discussing this with my husband yesterday as we were out and about doing things, um, after these pictures had kind of been premiered, uh, our, the thought, our, our kind of thought on it is that it's going to be, or it's more his thought and I, I disagree with it. Um, it'll be something like Barry just kind of wakes up one day and everything is Flashpoint, you know, it's, it's just changed. Um, obviously in Flashpoint, there was the interaction with, um, Reverse Flash that was kind of the center of all that happening. Um, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see how they're going to twist it to make this work for this movie. Um, I, I believe they're going to have... It would make a lot of sense if they had it connect in some way to the scene, um, the future scene in the Zack Snyder Justice League with the Joker and with Mera and everything like that. Um, it would make sense that that is what the Flash knows is the coming future if they continue on the path they're on now or something like that. Um, so odds are he's just going to wake up one day and this is how the world is. Uh, Sasha Calais will be the daughter of Superman and Lois Lane, which brings in the question, are we going to ever see Superman or is he just going to be discussed about, um, kind of teased in the same way that they tease, um, him in the, f the, f the first Flash movie. So... Um, not really sure, but I, I definitely hope to see Henry Cavill's Superman in this. I don't think it would be a full, completed, um, well, also Flashpoint, that does bring up another thing. Flashpoint, if I recall, was the one where Superman had been, 
uh, taken in by the military and hidden underground, correct? To be safe, to be kept from the sun so he couldn't be used as a weapon or whatever. Um, and then they go in the Flash and whoever, they go and they release him and then he saves the day, right? Um, so how would there be Supergirl if he's been in a underground vault his whole life? Maybe she just shows up on Earth and she's not his daughter, she's actually Kara. And they're just using that design. Um, in any case, I'm having a lot of fun theorizing about it, and if, as more information gets out, because they are filming, so it's bound to happen, we will continue discussing this as news goes forward. Released this morning was a official behind-the-scenes picture from the Shazam sequel, Fury of the Gods, and it is featuring the entire Shazam family. Um, the first thing that you notice here is that everybody has been leveled the fuck up. Um, I have two images in front of me here, and you can pull them up yourself if you would like to. One of them is the, um, the, the premiere, I guess, of the Shazam family in the first Shazam movie in all of their outfits, um, looking the way that they did then. The second photo is that photo that was released this morning you see the best improvements. Um, interestingly enough, oh, actually, they almost got everybody lined up the same way they were lined up in that first shot. Um, I remember digging the shit out of these costumes when I watched this movie. It was obviously a very cheesy movie, but I enjoyed the shit out of it. I liked Shazam a lot. Zachary Levi did a phenomenal job being this ridiculous overdone action hero. Um, and that went into a lot of these costumes was they were ridiculous action hero costumes, very translated exactly from the comic, the way that it looks on the page, which of course then ends up being spandex with muscle suits underneath, <laughs> which is funny. And it worked out with what they were doing for this movie um, because it was a little bit of a goofy kickoff and that was what they wanted. Um, but these next costumes, this movie is called Fury of the Gods, and you can tell with these costumes, they are here and they mean business. I don't remember the names of all the Shazam family, um, but you've got the blue one. He's in a much darker blue than before. The purple one is in pretty much, well, it's a little bit deeper purple, I suppose. Uh, the gray one is about the same gray. Shazam obviously looks, I should say Captain Marvel. He looks, um, he doesn't have the, mu none of them have like the muscle suit stuff underneath anymore. They have natural physiques is what it looks like. Whether or not there are muscle suits beneath that, they look a lot more natural, especially Zachary Levi, who also looks like he has grown himself. Uh, they're trying to make him look, I think, a lot more mature as well as, his costume looking a lot more serious. Uh, and then we're, we're going to skip Mary Marvel for a second. And the dude in the green is in a green that is so deep. It is almost black. Uh, and it looks really, really great on him. And then let's go back to Mary Marvel because she is clearly the shining star of this photo. Um, as a woman myself, this costume, I cannot imagine how empowering that must feel. It looks just like how a Wonder Woman costume would probably make you feel. It does look very similar, in fact, to a Wonder Woman costume. She's not the only woman of the group. The purple woman is also a character here who is female, uh, but she is in the pants. Mary Marvel is in the skirt, which is traditional for Mary Marvel. Um, you will also notice that she is a different actress than who played Mary Marvel in the first Flash, uh, Flash the first Shazam movie, which was Michelle Borth. Um, 
the character who played Mary, as in the adopted sister of all of the Shazam family, was Grace Fulton. Uh, so she played Mary in her non-powered form, and she is now actually the character woman who is playing, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, who is playing Mary in her Mary Marvel form. So that's really exciting. Um, they, I, I read a tweet or something by one of the guys who was saying the guys on board to the, the creators or whatever of the movie, um, saying that they're gonna make they're gonna make sure that you can tell she's a different person by doing her hair and her makeup differently. Uh, similar to how they do with Diana Prince versus Wonder Woman. So I imagine she'll probably have her hair up a lot um, and not as much makeup as as Mary. And then, of course, this stunning goddess that is Mary Marvel. Um, I, I can't get over how phenomenal she looks. It is absolutely... She she is the winner of this picture. Um, she, she just... I'm hoping they're in that movie a lot. I really honestly don't know what to expect. I haven't read a lot of Captain Marvel slash Shazam or Black Adam or anything like that comics. We know Black Adam's probably not going to show up in this because he's getting his own movie. It's going to be an origin and that wouldn't really make sense to have him show up in this. Uh, what we do know from this, though, is that they're going to be going against the villains of Helen Mirren's Hespera and Lucy Liu's Calypso, who are sisters and daughters of the Greek god Atlas. So Fury of the Gods is probably going to be Fury of those gods. Um, which is really exciting. Um, I can't even imagine Helen Mirren in a fight scene, though, so I I'm, I'm excited to find out how that's gonna work. <laughs> um, but, but, but just Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu as Greek goddesses? Come on! Like, wow! <laughs> you got me! I, you already had me with, like, the first movie being pretty good. Like, now I am fully into this. I don't I don't really care about this character in the comics, but wow, this this movie is looking like it is going to be shaping up to be a fantastic uh, watch. And this is uh, also Shazam! Fury of the Gods is going to be premiering next June, June 2nd, 2023. Um, I am excited for this, and if, if this is the first look that we're getting on the behind the scenes, can only imagine what the rest of the stuff is going to be like. Is this just them literally standing here, smiling at the camera, and they look so good. So I am, I am pumped to see more. All right. So to wrap things up, we're going to talk about the GI Joe Origins, or I guess it's Snake Eyes GI Joe Origins movie, because the trailer just came out this morning. I literally just finished watching it. Um, I I paused it before recording, watched it, and. I think it looks really cool. Not a clue. Not a damn clue what people think about it. I don't really care though because I think it looks awesome. Um, as I said earlier, I don't really have a lot of experience, if any, with G.I. Joe stuff. Um, I, what I do know is that there's been a lot of, well, some pushback of people who don't particularly like that the Snake Eyes character in this movie is an Asian man. Um... <laughs> I just, sorry, I'm laughing because, um, <laughs> I, I, doesn't it make sense to have a swordsman from Southeast Asia be a Southeast Asian man? Doesn't that, doesn't that make sense? Just saying, just putting that out there. Um, just go with that. I, I think it's. I think this is going to be fun. I would. I'm not clearly invested in a whole lot of plot or factoids being in the movie. Um, I'm invested in it as being just 
a fun ride. And I think that's really all we can ask of it. Um, all we can expect fairly from any of these types of movies anymore. Um, but this looks really good. It does. Um, it looks like they're the, the guy who's playing, let me pull up the cast really quick. Snake Eyes cast. Snake Eyes film. Um, the guy who's playing Snake Eyes is Henry... Oh, okay, his name is Henry Golding. I thought that was the character's name. Okay, there's Henry Golding, and he's playing the guy who's gonna be Snake Eyes. He was... If you've seen Crazy Rich Asians, he was, like, the boyfriend, fiancé, the, the rich fiancé in that. Um, and he was also the husband in A Simple Favor. Um... Was the dead? No, that's right, because she was missing. And yeah, he was the husband in A Simple Favor. So um, really, really glad to see that he is getting more kind of uh, recognition, I guess you would say, because he does do a really good job. Um, and something that is very interesting, there is the character, I guess his character is Storm Shadow. He is played by Andrew Koji, who is who was the main character on the HBO Max series Warrior. Um, actually, was it HBO? It was just, it's on HBO. I'm not sure if it was an HBO series. Um, but that show, Warrior, follows a lot of back in the day, early 1900s, kind of, uh, late 1800s, I guess is probably more accurate to what it is. It is followed the Chinese Tongs. Um, and he was a character who was kind of in the midst of all of that. The gangs back in the day and the, the basically Asian slavery in the West Coast, building San Francisco and everything. It's a, it's a brutal history, but what isn't in America? Um, this looks really good. You also have Ursula Colbero playing the Baroness. I know she's a villain. Uh, you have Samara Weaving playing Scarlet, who I don't think is a villain. I, I don't think so. I'm not really sure. Um, she is a, you know, classic blonde haired white chick who shows up in action movies to catch the eye of the main character. It's, it's pretty traditional. Um, <laughs> and it looks like this is pretty much, um, he saves the storm shadow character and then they go off and he takes them to these trials. Um, and he's going to fight in the trials. And then there's the Cobra who is the villains and they're going to, be trying to take things over, I'm sure. And if you're a G.I. Joe fan listening to this, you're probably getting really mad or laughing, one or the other. No in between. Um, <laughs> I think it looks fun. And to make it even better, there is a really fun little, um, you know, they had to give us the clip of the Snake Eyes mask, and it looks awesome! I, I think it looks really cool. Um, my husband just, um, he... Uh, he um, customized his G.I. Joe Snake Eyes figure to, to look a lot more like the the live action version. And I think it looks really, really good. And I'm just seeing here, Henry, Henry Golding, who is playing Snake Eyes, is a Malaysian actor. I believe that is where Snake Eyes himself is supposed to be from. Um, so it just, it just makes sense. Whether it's Malaysia or some other Southeast Asian country, um, it just makes sense. I If you are mad about him not being a white dude... I'm not sorry. Get over it, honestly. <laughs> um, but in any case, that wraps up this episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. Thank you for tuning in to whatever amount of time you have tuned in to uh, be here with me today. I hope that I have given you something interesting to think about and this hasn't been a complete disappointment. <laughs> um, next episode is going to be this coming Friday, the 25th of June. 
Um, and that will be covering the comic book picks, things that I really enjoyed from this week's comic releases based on the pull list that I just went over today. Uh, I will also be just discussing Loki episode three because that is premiering Wednesday, don't forget. Um, and potentially Superman and Lois, I really hated the last episode, so I might just stop watching that soon. We're going to have to see. And whatever other news and breaking news and announcements and things like that pop up in the comic book industry and related industries between now and then. Thank you again for tuning in. Um, it is the first day of summer here in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, so if you're listening today on the 21st, it is midsummer. Have a nice bowl of fruit or wine or pick some flowers. Enjoy the sunlight because this is the longest day of the year. It's only going to get shorter from here on out as we go into fall. So um, have a wonderful, wonderful first few days of summer here whenever you listen to this. Uh, stay hydrated, stay cool, and stay nerdy. Get sweaty all the time. Peace.